0: Welcome to Making a Difference, a Junction Journalism production. My name's Annabelle Fleming.
1: And I'm Ned Coleman. This program has been produced by journalism students from RMIT. We would like to acknowledge that we are recording on the unceded land of the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nations.
0: In this episode, we'll be hearing the stories of Pentridge Prison from two very different tour guides with the same name. We'll also be hearing about how some people in Melbourne are trying to find different ways to fund social housing and a story about North Warrandyte and what people living there are worried about when it comes to bushfires.
1: But first, a story about citizen science and the role it played with native forest logging in Victoria.
0: Earlier this year, the Labor State Government in Victoria announced that native forest logging in the state will end in December, six years earlier than previously planned. This announcement came after the government decided the risk of bushfires, as well as legal campaigns, meant logging was no longer economically or environmentally viable. But what role does citizen science play in all of this? Melanie Bakewell spoke to citizen scientists in Victoria to find out more.
2: I can't even think of where the forest movement would be yeah, without
3: people doing citizen science. which is going out into the forest to survey for threatened species plants or animals which then trigger protections
2: looking for some of the wildlife and values that are being lost uh, to hold the government accountable to laws that they're not following it's always bittersweet in the way that It's sort of, it's nice being out in the forest and it's nice going and seeing the wildlife, but also knowing that they're threatened by logging kind of adds this, yeah, this darker feeling to it. And also feeling like,
3: we we shouldn't have to be doing this. My name is Tuffy Morvitza. I'm a campaigner for the Goongar Environment Centre, otherwise known as Gecko. Uh, my name's Chris Scheringer and I work for the Victorian Forest Alliance as the campaign
2: coordinator. So there's environment groups from East Gippsland, Central Gippsland, South Gippsland, Central Highlands, Tullarook, Strathbogies, uh, Wombat State Forest in the West and also city-based campaigners as well.
4: Victoria has a long history of forest advocacy, and a long history of logging. Driving through Gippsland and the Central Highlands, it's easy to see the pioneer narrative small towns built on sawmills and extraction. But in 2023, the industry is hearing the death rattle. Back in 2019, the Andrews government announced a transition away from native logging.
3: You know, we've used a lot of different tools over the decades groups who are taking legal action, uh, lobbying decision makers.
4: Blockading. Um, Producing reports with other environment groups.
3: Groups that
2: do citizen citizen science.
4: In 2022, the Andrews government passed anti-protest laws targeting protests in timber harvesting safety zones. Basically anywhere forestry activity is happening. Protesters face increased police search powers, fines of up to $21,000 and jail time of up to a year. I
2: don't think it's going to have the impact that the government thinks it will. The government thinks it's going to scare people and stop people from taking action when I believe um, that's the furthest thing from the truth because people care deeply about these
4: forests, people want to see them protected and people will do anything. It's not limited to blockading or direct action. It includes the work of citizen scientists. They to a survey for greater gliders, tree g-bungs or lead-beater possums.
2: Yeah, the idea that volunteers who are going out, people are not only putting in the time, but, you know, their cars are getting bashed up because they're driving on these forest roads. Like, people will pour their time and energy into doing it just purely because they care. And the idea that they would be fined thousands of dollars and potentially face jail time, it just... It doesn't make any sense to me, um, considering how important it's been. In many instances,
3: court cases rely on citizen science as evidence. You know, the legal cases paused logging for the last six months.
2: Last year, there was a week in October where Vic Forrest lost three court cases against community groups. (laughs)
4: In one case in the Supreme Court, Justice Richards said that Vic Forests, quote, still does not thoroughly survey the coops for greater gliders when planning timber harvesting operations. They're appealing the decision. In a statement on their website, Vic Forest say the court's new interpretation of what they're required to do means they're reassessing their survey methods. So now they're using drones.
2: It's not clear how effective that is compared to on-the-ground surveys.
4: On 20th of May 2023, the anti-protest laws came into effect. Community groups organized a mass protest and survey action to coincide with the 20th of May. Almost 200 people turned out to look for wildlife values and to show their defiance of the new laws.
3: In in confronting these laws, we want to make sure that the movement won't experience the laws as a diminishment of their power, but as a consolidation of it. There aren't the laws in place
2: to protect these threatened species, but there are laws that are designed to stop people from trying to protect them.
3: We need to be able to defend a future that we can live in. You know, The right to protest is very crucial to that.
1: Pentridge Prison, in the northern suburb of Coburg in Melbourne, opened in 1851 and was one of the most notorious penitentiaries in the state until it closed in 1997. Some of the sites have been now transformed into apartment buildings, while some were preserved. A new tour of the prison was opened to the public in May 2023, telling stories from inside the graffitied prison walls. Reporter Ruth McHugh-Dillon spoke with one of the tour guides, Chris, and a key Gundich Gunditjmara artist and former Pentridge prisoner, Chris Austin. Austin now uses his art to tell his own story and mentor others to keep them out of jail.
5: I'm on Wurundjeri country at Pentridge Prison in Coburg. It's a noisy place with a lot of people. Kids are running around a big playground, couples are having drinks at outdoor tables. Here you can get your hair done, see a movie and get a massage if you want. But this prison, which has been converted into a local village all about sensory stimulation and social life, used to be defined by two concepts that ruled prisoners' lives. Silence and separation.
1: A lot of the things that they were doing in the early years weren't necessarily deliberately designed to punish.
5: I'm talking to Chris a program facilitator at Pentridge Prison.
1: Program facilitator is basically being a tour guide.
5: Tours of the old prison have just started at Pentridge and Chris is one of the people who takes visitors into parts of the site that you can't see without a guide. Chris has explained the silent and separate system to our tour group. In the 19th century, it was an experimental system of rehabilitation. So instead of punishing prisoners physically, they would be forced into silent monk-like reflection in isolation, 23 hours a day alone in their cells. When they were let outside to be aired for one hour a day, they had to wear slitted hoods over their faces and tread on special mats to ensure they couldn't even hear the footsteps of other prisoners in the yard next to them. Chris is a self-confessed history nerd, but he's careful to point out that this place can't be relegated to the past. The prison only closed in 1997.
1: It is still a very lived prison. A lot of people we work with serve time in here as either a prisoner or a prison guard.
5: One of these people is Chris Austin, an artist and Kirei wurrung Mara man, who spent time in Pentridge as a prisoner. Now he works as a mentor with The Torch, an art organisation that works with First Nations people in prison and after when they're released
6: going to the prisons now and visit the boys there and talk to them and when they get outside i stay in contact with all of them especially like if they have problems their arts officers will call me to give them a call you know be down on that and go and talk to them because there's nothing that they're experiencing that i haven't experienced
5: it seems like both chrises are working as guides in different ways one guides visitors into the prison to understand it and one guides prisoners inside the system and as they come out. Chris Austin has contributed artworks to the Pentridge tours, as well as recorded audio that visitors listen to as they walk through the cells. In B Division, you can visit a room that has Chris Austin's work on one wall, and on the other, a reproduction of a giant canvas by his late cousin Les Griggs. It dwarfs you in the cramped cell.
6: And my cousin Les, he started painting in jail too. Like a lot of the boys in the torch, you know, and he got out and painting kept him out of jail and he grew up in the homes and the jails. I think a lot of the doing is telling your stories through the painting because he told a lot of stories with his artwork.
5: I'm interested in the two Chris's commitment to storytelling. As a way to draw people into lived experiences of pentridge, it seems like an interesting response to a place defined by silence, separation, and shame well into the 20th century.
1: There is, that's that general, it's historical um, aspect. Uh, But also it's important to kind of recognise how people were treated over the years and that helps us reflect on how modern our current prison system is.
5: It's also about education and giving people a second chance. And not just prisoners.
6: I do a lot of talks. Because I believe a lot of people aren't racist or they are you always got to give them a shot, you know, because some people just don't know. Some are just ignorant. So, you know, you educate them, you explain to them, you let them know how it was.
5: If the usefulness of the silent and separate system in rehabilitating people is a question, storytelling seems like an interesting answer. For Chris Austin, art is storytelling, and storytelling is the way to stay out of jail.
6: Divorce area is, like, involved with the tort program. We've got it down to, like, 11%. We're turning back to jail. It's like doing therapy, you know? <laughs> they say, you know, once you get it out, you release it, you
0: know, that problem. <laughs> you release it through art. Reporter Ruth McHugh-Dillon is here with us in the studio today. Ruth, how did you first get interested in telling the story about Pentridge?
5: Yeah, I live nearby and it's hard to avoid Pentridge. It's very visible, so I've driven past it a lot. So when I started to get, to get interested in this story, it happened to be the time when they were opening the tours and I went on a couple. So one was to B Division um, and one was to H Division. So H Division is the really notorious, I think there's been a lot of mythology about it, um, partly because there's, it's the place where the most number of people tried to escape, including Ryan Reynolds, who was the last person ever hanged in Australia. Um, and he was hanged for murdering someone after trying to escape. I think when I went there, I wasn't really prepared for how much it physically affects you to be inside a place like that. So even just the chill, the coldness of the walls, and the idea of spending your days with you know a concrete floor and that kind of feeling, the smells, the sights. Um, but I also think it did change my mind and my understanding of Pentridge as a site, which is what you want, right, as a journalist and as a citizen, to be able to have your mind changed. I think I went in quite sceptical um, because I think Australia often doesn't deal with historical atrocities very in a very nuanced way, in a very complex way. And I think Pentridge Prison, they've made a huge effort to really centre the voices of people with lived experience there. Um, And that included prison guards, as well as prisoners, um, as well as just residents who had kind of felt this looming presence in Coburg. So I think my mind was changed because I thought, okay, we're starting to actually have a more nuanced approach to history.
0: And can you tell me about the two Cresses?
5: Yes. So that was just a coincidence. But in my... Um, experience of the tour I met this really fantastic quite young tour guide who I think is just kind of a history fanatic Um, and he now works for the National Trust Victoria but one of the things I really valued talking to him and getting to interview him was that he also had such respect for the fact that it's a living place and he had a really deep respect for the fact that people have that living memory and it isn't just a site for kind of kitsch ghost tour, um, kind of, you know, haunted house vibes. It, it's a place that needs to be respected as a site of trauma and as a really important place. So that was the first Chris. Um, the second Chris I got in touch with via The Torch, which is an Indigenous art group who do something very particular, which is work with people in prison making art as well as when they leave. So it's kind of making sure people don't just fall into the community with no support. So Chris Austin was an artist, or he became an artist in Pentridge Prison when he was in prison there. And he has continued to work with The Torch, so now he mentors mentors other people. I had a phone interview with him, and he was really generous with his time. And then one day when I was visiting Pentridge again, I actually saw him just in the distance walking past with a young person. I don't know if it was a relative so I thought he, he's someone who keeps going back to that prison, um, which obviously in its history so many people have tried to escape. So I felt really lucky in this story to be able to hear both of their perspectives and learn so much.
0: Yeah, and you talk so much about the lived experience and you know, being in the space really brings the story to life. It's pretty incredible that one of the Chris's has literally um, lived in, in that space but in two different capacities. Pleasure to speak with you today, Ruth. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, And now to a different part of Melbourne. Residents and campaigners have been fighting to prevent the planned demolition of the public housing estates at Barrack Beacon in Port Melbourne and in Ascot Vale. As part of their campaign, they produced an alternative proposal according to the principles of retain, repair, reinvest, challenging the way that the government currently develops social housing. Has it been successful? Penry Buckley with the story.
7: We don't disagree. So, now...
8: In the middle of a national housing crisis, the future of public housing is a very public issue, as I learned from Joe Toscano, anarchist radio presenter and organiser of the group Public Housing Everybody's Business. They run a weekly protest, or vigil, as Joe corrected me.
7: But we don't do protests, we do vigils, okay? We've been here on the steps of Parliament House for about seven years. My name is Harry, I come here because I believe that the fight for public
8: housing... Recently, Activists from public and private housing communities alike have been fighting the Victorian state government's planned demolition of two historic public housing estates, the Ascot Vale estate and the Barrack Beacon estate in Port Melbourne.
9: My name's Jeremy Dixon. I live in public housing in North Carlton. Been an on-and-off activist in the area over some years. Probably motivated to turn up today because of Margaret Kelly.
8: Margaret Kelly is one of the last remaining residents at the Barrack Beacon estate. On the 13th of December 2021, residents were told after a knock on their door that their homes were going to be bulldozed and redeveloped. Margaret has been fighting attempts to relocate her ever since, including an eviction order for the week that I meet her.
9: What's very obvious if you walk around here is that whoever built this, and we're still working it out, just thought really hard about creating attractive buildings and a community. So buildings that people can just thrive in.
8: Margaret and other residents of the two estates worked with the not-for-profit architect office to produce alternative proposals to refurbish and build onto the existing sites according to the principles of retain, repair, reinvest. These proposals have challenged the state government's recent model of demolishing and redeveloping public housing into privately run community housing. More on what that means later. Normally, it's communities like Margaret's who are expected to bear what she thinks will be the enormous social cost of demolition.
9: The community as a community won't survive. They're behaving like people who don't know what a home is. They think they can just pick up people like we're a Lego set or something and pop us into other housing and that'll all be fine. I have tried to talk to them about about the research that demonstrates this kind of forced relocation is damaging to people.
8: As David Kelly, A public housing researcher at RMIT explains, the research is clear about the effect of demolition on communities, even when residents are offered the chance to return, as they have been here. Generally speaking, if we take previous renewals as our kind of benchmark, people do not tend to return. But the impacts of displacement, particularly forced displacement, they're well documented the world over. So we know that the health impact of forced relocation shaves years off life expectancy, has serious impacts on mental health as well as financial well-being. David also explains the new and sometimes confusing terminology that he says is being used by governments worldwide to hide a shift away from state-managed public housing. Public housing is state-owned managed, community housing is non-state-owned or managed, Um, and then. Social housing is the terminology that obscures the differences between the two of them in order to mask the transfer of stock. The new social housing proposed for Ascot Vale and Barrack Beacon is community housing and run by private companies. Without the same public accountability for things like limits on rent or regular maintenance, campaigners and residents say. The
0: way produced hopefully kind of captures the beauty of the site as it
5: stands and the potential for upgrading it.
8: Miriam McGarry is a researcher and writer who helped put together the office reports. She says that it's also unclear if the new builds will be to the same standard as the existing estates, which were built during a period of great post-war public housing idealism.
0: Public housing in this period was designed and built for a high quality for all residents. So we're trying to emphasise the heritage value as something that should be celebrated and continued so that...
8: Although Margaret expects she may end up being carried out of her home in the coming months, she's still hopeful that the office designs, which began by asking the community first what it needed, may yet be realised.
9: When office developed their plans, they consulted tenants, they found out what was good and bad in the buildings, and they've done these lovely designs that with just very small tweaks of the internal layouts of the buildings change it. And it would just be lovely to see that.
1: Living in Victoria, especially in rural areas, means living with the constant threat of bushfires. For one of our reporters, this is something that was regularly discussed in her family. This is because North Warrandyte, a suburb about 24 kilometres northeast of Melbourne CBD, only has one way in and out, which means evacuation, in the case of a bushfire, will be a huge challenge. Sydney Lang with the story.
10: I mean, we didn't know at the time what was going on, but it was just that north wind that had been so hot for so long and then suddenly it just felt like, you know, yeah, this is the end of the world. <laughs> mm. that's, how, that's the sort of feeling it felt. You know, you could not step outside your house and there was smoke billowing all up, up to the north of us.
11: Travelling into Warrandyte, a suburb in Melbourne's northeast, and the suburb I grew up in, it can be difficult to believe you're only 40 minutes away from the CBD. I know it lies on the banks of the same Yarra River. Warrandyte instead boasts a skyline of eucalyptus trees, dense nature reserves and clear night skies. It has one road in and one road out. When summer arrives, the banks of the Yarra become our Bondi Beach. But instead of sharks, we keep our eye out for snakes. And instead of sand, we rinse thick mud from our feet. But it isn't always like that. When February rolls around on a hot year, the residents of Warrandyte start to look out for something far worse. Something they've been afraid of for a long time. Victoria is no stranger to bushfires. They've forever been a characteristic of the landscape and among the Victorian suburbs listed most at risk, Warrandite's position is a tricky one. To understand this position, I spoke to Ryan Smith, former Minister for the Environment and a current Member of Parliament for Warrandyte.
7: Uh, look, I think um, it's fair to say that in Warrandyte, every year that we don't have a fire is one year closer to having one. I, unfortunately, the lessons of Black Saturday all those years ago showed us that it doesn't take much for an area that's a suburban area that's surrounded by trees and, and state forest. If, it, if there is a fire, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. So I think that the preparation from the government's been very limited and putting the community in danger. I always worry about it every, every time we go into summer.
11: The past three years have been categorised by scientists as La Nina, a weather event characterised in Australia by higher rainfall and cooler temperatures. This year, scientists are already beginning to predict that we're entering its opposite, forecasting hotter and drier weather in what's known as El Nino. I spoke to my mum, a resident of Warrandyte for 28 years. Do you think after we've had a few years now of cooler weather and the pandemic
10: and all of that, do you think people have sort of forgotten? Yeah, they have, because... I mean, you grew up here. You know that every summer everyone starts to panic,
11: yeah. you
10: know. And these three years have been so unusual. They've been so cold and so wet that no, that has not been a part of it, you know. And that, that I think that's the first time ever I, I haven't, you know, felt a bit of a growing panic in Warrandyte. And we start talking about fires and we start, you know, we just... It's just a part of the culture here to be a bit panic-stricken all summer, and we've really forgotten about it.
11: Warrandite's precarious position isn't new, and most of the residents have likely seen just how close the fire can get. But if the predictions of higher temperatures and less rainfall are true, Warrandyte needs to be ready. Back in 2009, during Black Saturday,
10: Warrandyte got out lucky. Uh, it was coming towards us um, from the north and it was 15 minutes from Warrendale, and nobody got told. Everyone was sitting inside in their air conditioning and uh, then the wind changed.
11: What makes Warrendale different from other high-risk areas is our road, singular. Some officials have predicted that a total evacuation of North Warrendale could take around 10 hours.
10: I really wouldn't want to be living in North Warrandyte because all of those roads that go off the main roads are dead end into the bush. And I don't know how you get out of those roads because people will not let you out of those roads if they're all rushing to get out.
7: Is that um, if you're trying to leave North Warrandyke, you're still, you know, it doesn't matter how many river crossings there are, there's still only a single lane road in and out of Warrandyke, and there's not really the ability to widen it because you've got the river on one side, you've got a very heavily treed area on the other, you know, there's just not the the opportunity to widen it.
11: Looking forward, suburbs like Warrandyke need a comprehensive plan with local and state governments, ensuring that all residents are aware of the dangers. Places like Warrandyte are not entirely unique, but like Warrandyte, every suburb in a bushfire-prone area needs to be prepared for the upcoming summers if we have any chance of preventing the reoccurrence of Black Saturday.
0: That's it for this episode. For more stories from some of the best student journalists in the region, go to our website, junctionjournalism.com.
1: Making a Difference is produced every month by a different university. You can subscribe through your favourite podcasting app. I'm Annabelle Fleming. And I'm Ned Coleman. Thanks for listening.